folks, this is Screen Watching. If you're familiar with the podcast, you know we watch things on screen and then talk about them on a podcast in this audio video medium. Uh, you can find us in your podcast apps and via you know your video Spotify's and YouTube's and whatnot. We're there, we're audio, we're video, and we're in your house. Oh wait, what? Okay, let's back away from that. I think the legal team are going to be knocking my door shortly. Folks, on the show this week, we're going to be diving into some really big titles. We're going to be talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. There's a Australian cop drama called Deadlock. There's a big, scary 20th Century Fox release in cinemas called The Boogeyman. And we're looking at a small little art house film streaming on Netflix called The Year I Started Masturbating. Folks, get a grip. This is screen watching. Not like TV only better. Television, teacher, mother, secret lover. What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. This is the podcast we do each week. It's called Screen Watching. We've got some titles, some family-friendly ones, and then there's also a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, look, um, I was a little concerned that we would be uh, delving into the world of self-pleasure in this week's podcast, and it took us all of about 23 seconds to do a get-a-grip joke, so I'm quietly confident that we'll be able to handle this with our usual dignity and decorum. How are you, Dan Barrett? Good to talk to you here on the Screen Watching Podcast. Uh, look, it's good. It's a very early morning record, uh, you know, oh bleary-eyed. Uh, the sun's not up yet, but, you know, we've got the sun no, in our not. hearts, and that's what counts. Simon Foster, I think we need to just... Oh, sorry, you're well. Let's just take it in. I am well. Look, I'm very well. I'm getting set for a big weekend of, of football reverie. The, there's the A-League Grand Final. There's the FA Cup Final. It's sport, Dan. It's on Paramount+. Plus. Um, it's appropriate. There should be a whole Ted Lasso backlash this weekend because of the, the round ball game that's going on all around us. So, um, yeah, it's a very sporty weekend, although my Tigers lost last night. Are you still with us, Dan? I'm talking sport. So I heard the word finale, so I was thinking about actual finale, so I was thinking about Succession, I was thinking about Ted Lasso, I was thinking about uh, The Marvelous yeah. Mrs. Maisel, I was thinking about block, uh, Drops of Gold. There's all sorts of finales happening, and I don't know why you're bothering with this actual like sport business. What's going on? <laughs> there really was. And I do just want to mention quickly at the top of the show, our birthday dudes this week, Mark Wahlberg, Max Casella, Liam Neeson, and Griffin Dunn. What could they all possibly have in common you'll find out later in our birthday quiz segment so yeah very exciting week and of course there's the whole wanking thing yeah uh what could they have in common i don't know maybe simon's inherent misogyny by not choosing any women to be part of the birthday quiz but you know i guess it is Again what it is all right let's do reviews it stinks playing in cinemas now is the latest spider-man movie that spider hyphen man uh it's an animated one it's called across the spider-verse my name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. And things are going great. Oh yeah, you were supposed to be here at five. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? I am the spot. <laughs> it's not funny. Don't, don't do that. Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying Mira, Simon, I don't know about your relationship with the first Into the Spider-Verse movie, but I remember seeing a trailer for it played as, uh, if people went and saw the movie Venom, instead of in the closing credits having some sort of, you know, mid-sequence thing, which I think the film Venom did have that, uh, but it also had a mid-sequence just 
complete push to advertise the Into the Spider-Verse movie by playing That's a true. short little three-minute clip midway through the credits. And I remember mm. sitting in the cinema, I was watching that and thought, you know what? That film doesn't look very good. Uh, it was just like, it just left me really cold. But then I got to the wow. cinema and I watched it. I'm like, wait, no, that was actually one of the most amazing things I've ever seen on a cinema screen. And really yeah, and I was really into it. I think I saw that maybe twice in the cinema. It was a really impressive piece of animated work. And it was kind of hard to sell people who aren't like Marvel diehards on the idea of going to see a cartoon Spider-Man movie. And you're talking about it being like an elevated experience and people's eyes just glaze over because it's like, well, yeah, it's do. just a Spider-Man cartoon. Like really, how artistically ambitious could it be? And you're like, no, no, it was really doing some interesting things with um, like both sort of uh, animation in terms of its texture, oh, but also animation. the texture of the scripting. And like, it was just a really smart, tidy little movie but then they announced they were doing these sequels because the first one did kind of okay cinema wise it didn't really sort of break any box office records but it did perfectly fine but the word on mouth though around it and the massive enthusiasm around the film was more than enough for sony to say let's do some more of these spider-verse films so there's a sequel coming out and i heard about that and i thought oh, okay that's pretty cool i like that first one quite a bit and then i just kind of lost enthusiasm for it and i don't really understand why entirely so when i sat in the cinema chair i like the directors that worked on the first one weren't on the second one like um lord and miller who had been co-writers on that first film were back for the second one so i thought well there's some continuity but you know whatever like how good could it be simon how good could it be this may be my movie of the year this thing's incredible here's the blurb about the film and then we'll start diving into actually sure. i just realized i've got a blurb here but it's a really long blurb uh let's stick around <laughs> basically the premise of this one is in the first film, Spider-Man meets a whole bunch of other spider people from across the Spider-Verse, so it introduced the idea of multiverses into um, you know, popular culture, uh, which my first really warning with that, that in a couple of yeah, years. My first warning, Bill, because multiverses is kind of a, a shorthand for we've run out of ideas on one set of characters, we're going to just spit it off in another universe and do them again. So um, that got me worried, but... You go on. Yeah, look, I don't entirely disagree with that, but let's swing back and talk about that just a yep. little bit, because I really actually hate the idea of multiverses, but I love it in Spider-Man because it's actually a really yeah. approachable uh, entry point to it all. So he makes, uh, he, it's about this guy, Miles Morales. He feels a little bit sort of alone in the world, like all teenagers do. There's metaphors and whatnot. Uh, but basically he meets like his people who are other Spider-Men from various other universes where, um, you know, radioactive spiders bite people in strange ways and it's just it's an entirely different thing so you know there was one which is a spider girl named gwen who's this woman gwen stacy who's part of the spider-man mythos but she's a spider person in this other world uh there's peter parker spider-man who's the spider-man that we all kind of know but this version of him's a um, middle-aged spider-man who's a little bit sort of overweight and a bit sort of you know generally out of shape mentally and physically uh, you've got like Spider-Man Noir, who's a black and white um, 1920s era Spider-Man. You've got Spider-Ham, who's a little pig type creature. Uh, his secret identity is Peter Porker. I'm not sure if they talk about that in the movie or not. There's a, uh, Lego, there's a great Lego reference in oh, there. Well, no, Lego no, Simon, that's in, that's in the second film. I'm still talking about the first film. Oh, you're so, talking in the first film, okay. Yeah, so that's him meeting his people. But as the second film opens, effectively we find that despite the fact he made all these friends across the Spider-Verse, none of them have been in contact with him since. Okay, so like that loneliness he was feeling in that first film is still kind of present. And he's got this real longing taking place, being the Miles Morales character, because he knows that his people are out there, and particularly Gwen, a woman, well, a female, you know, teenage girl spider person, that he's got quite a bit of a teenage uh, romantic sort of yearning for. 
Um, they're all out there, but he can't contact with them and there's no way he can really reach out to them because he's got no access to it. So he kind of seems in a way even more alone than he was in that first film because, you know, he knows that he's got the potential, it just can't be realized. But as the film actually opens, we open up in Gwen Stacy's world, which is animated entirely differently to the Spider-Man film that we'd seen previously. And that's kind of when, you know, and like the actual sort of, I think, first line of the movie is narration from Gwen Stacy saying, this time we're doing things a little bit differently. And yeah, by that they yeah. mean they're just upping the stakes on every single level going through. As amazing as the animation was in that first film, it is about 15 to 20 times better in this one. It's more creative, it's more vibrant, and consider how creative and vibrant it was that first time through. Like, it is a feat. The Gwen Stacy um, sequence, uh, basically, there's apparently an artist that it's modeled after, and I didn't quite catch who that painter was. But Yeah, they use a lot of different styles yeah. in the film, and a lot of different sort of, uh, to, to, to convey the different multiverses. And it becomes it becomes such a crucial part of the storytelling as well, the different animation styles. Yeah, but that Gwen Stacy universe, like it's uh, like a painted sort of a look to it, but like the paint colors are moving on walls in the background and across their Beautiful. faces and really just heightens the emotional tension that's taking place there. Very Ken Doan. Uh, yeah, very Ken Doan. That's exactly the artist, Simon. But the <laughs> sort of uh, emotional sort of intent of the Gwen Stacy sequence to begin with was uh, she's got a, in her world, as we discover, her best friend was Peter Parker, who ends up, uh, being a bit jealous of, you know, the super heroics taking place. And so in typical Marvel Spider-Man fashion, he's a scientist and swallows some sort of a potion, turns into the lizard, uh, which we've seen in other Spider-Man things before. Yep. And so she ends up fighting him. He ends up dying during the fight. And her father, who's a police captain, blames uh, the Spider-Woman Spider character for murdering this uh, teenage kid who was the family friend. And yep. so for what's seemingly been a couple of years since, uh, he's been hunting the Spider-Woman character. She's been hiding it from her dad. And at the end of the sequence, she ends up being revealed in a really exciting sequence at the Guggenheim Museum, yeah. uh, which is just like an amazing backdrop for an animated um, experience like this. It's a great opening to a film. It's yeah. a great but anyway, she, she gets busted, the mask's off, and instead of confronting her father, she goes running into the Spider-Verse with some other Spider-People. And that's kind of the opening for the movie. So the film is very much about people running from and embracing their emotional true selves. And it's there's there's a very key thing that they're doing throughout the film, but I'm not sure you can talk about it because it kind of is a big spoiler for the end as they kind of reveal what's really taking place. But I think I just wanted to establish at a front up that everything that we liked about that first Spider-Verse movie, which was the creative takes on what a Spider-Man character can be and who they should be, is amplified but what i liked about that first film it was wasn't just playing around with costumes and the superpowers and all that kind of business it was actually talking about what and i mean this kind of runs through spider-man a bit generally but what the actual uh, responsibility and emotional stakes are of being involved in this kind of a world and it is so, really centered despite being so fantastic which i just think is magnificent and this film like is emotionally moving in a way that the first film like it was kind of a bit surface level emotion this one like i was legitimately feeling it right through yeah look i i, I totally agree with you on this i think it is one of the films of the year I, I i woke up very early this morning and the very top sort of variety newsletter um headline was why across the spider-verse should be considered for a best picture nomination not just a best animated picture nomination and i got no problem with that either um this is i, I what i loved about this film was that it takes the 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 marvel sort of superhero framework that these stories find them often find themselves bogged down in um 
and then it spins it off into this no pun intended um spins it off into this story about um outsiders and loners and people trying to connect with the world around them when the world around them is becoming more and more alienated and that is really engaging and, and will really speak to a teenage audience, but is also completely understandable to all of us. And then there's the other element of it, which, and I, I guess this is the part you're alluding to when you say when you don't want to spoil too much, but it's about the the, the canon, the, the, the law that is involved with um, Spider-Man storytelling and how that becomes part of the story. And I love those kind of meta narratives where they look at the actual legend itself, the mythology, um, the, the elements of the canon that need to be employed to make the, every Spider-Verse come alive and, and become real. And I thought that was so beautifully handled and so like exciting to watch. So, um, I mean, you've spoken beautifully about it. I can't add too much more to it other than to say that the, the animation in this is just so incredibly dazzling. Um, unlike, it is so uniquely of this this franchise now, I guess. Um, there's, there's one more film to come and and... And I guess they'll double down on the animation styles in that as well to, to, to make it the incredible experience this one was. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we've stumbled across one of the more exciting, innovative, thrilling Hollywood movies in quite some time. Yeah, so the animation style does change throughout it because what we're actually seeing in this film is the first film is Ends of the Spider-Verse. So it's very much about, um, you know, Peter Parker discovering that there's a sort of wider universe around him. But the second film is him traveling, skipping across these various sort of Spider-Man universes. So we actually see other Spider-universes and we don't just see characters from them come to the modern world. So when you are in each of these different environments, it really is an entirely different sort of visual palette and um, spirit of intent behind them. So without sort of spoiling too much, like we see a Lego Spider-Man, we visit a Spider-Man that's um, the city of New York is inspired heavily by Mumbai instead of just being a very American kind of an experience. Whether he's actually in New York or whether it's in Mumbai, like they don't really say, but it doesn't really matter. Like it's kind of just, you know, it's both cultures sort of just really sort of fused together in a really sort of fun way. And you start seeing the cultural sort of impact of that. There's... Um, Spider-Punk, who, I don't know if Spider-Punk was ever a character from the comics at all, but he's certainly <laughs> prominent in the Spider-Man video game. And this is yeah. the thing, like, it's actually using all these sort of um, multimedia, cross-media elements and just infusing it into, like, one spirit as to what a Spider-Man can be, which yeah. I think is kind of fun. But if this one's called Across the Spider-Verse, and then there's a third one called Beyond the Spider-Verse, like, yeah. what are they actually doing there? So what I thought was interesting in this one is... In addition to all the various animation styles, they also bring in some video footage. So there's a spider character, well, sorry, a character from the Spider-Man movies, which is featured as his actual physical self in this movie. Okay, yes, as like a bit of a, a cameo sort of a reference. Yeah. Uh, there's also like another video um, sequence where uh, one of the Spider-Mans enters like, you know, the meat space. But like, what does beyond the Spider-Verse actually mean? And so I'm wondering, like, is that going to be a metaphorical thing or is this actually taking Spider-Man into maybe something? Like, I, I don't know what that means. And these know, titles actually do mean something. So yeah. I'm genuinely excited to know what that's going to mean. It's not like the Planet of the Apes movies back in the day where you've got, like, Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Beyond and Conquest. Just to the left of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, down and around uh, that bend of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, <laughs> 
by the shops near the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> like, you, you don't have, like, those titles are just meaningless, but here they actually really mean something to what they're doing creatively as well as uh, narratively. So, it look, could really be a standalone. I mean, it, it could become that sort of trilogy of films where we talk about, like, um, you know, Star Wars, Empire, Jedi, or we talk about the three Lord of the Rings films, that that middle section is like Empire Strikes Back or like The Two Towers. It's the standout film of the of the trilogy, and this and this certainly feels like that. I, I, obviously, the third one's going to go big, um, and I'm so thrilled, and we're, we're sort of skimming over the fact that it's as much Gwen Stacy's story as it is Peter Parker's or Miles Morales or... See, I'm not sure um, that's actually true. I think it definitely well, starts out... I mean, she's such a crucial part. I think she's more than just the offsider in this. She, uh, she plays yeah, a yeah, big I mean, part. It's, it's more than that, but like it's a bit more like the first film where you suddenly get her as a major player throughout the film, but I wouldn't say it's really her film. Like, the focal point, even though it starts from her perspective, like, as soon as we are reintroduced into Miles, it becomes very much his film while bringing sort of strong elements of her story into it. But yeah, I don't know, yeah, it's, it's not a two-hander by any means. The family element. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Anyway, Spider-Man the, the across warning, the Spider-Verse. Was, sorry, yep. sorry, I was going to say the one warning, and I didn't actually realise that there was, it was like a two-part movie. So you're going to reach the end of this movie and see a big yeah. to be continued across the screen. I and know. this is the one thing I would probably say is disappointing about the movie in that I don't think that it wraps up enough of the narrative that takes place within this first film to just end like that. Like, you think about other movies, like, you mentioned Empire Strikes Back, for example. Like, that's a contained movie that has an open-ended element to the end of it. Whereas yes. this feels very much like, and because we haven't seen the sequel, I don't know exactly what that's going to entail. But it does feel very much like we've only seen the first, maybe, like, one or two, uh, uh, like, acts of a oh, story. Look- and it's just so chopped in half, and narratively i found that a little bit disappointing but in a sense as well i was kind of relieved because i've just been so overwhelmed by cinema you look you're absolutely right this doesn't hide the fact that this is a bridging episode and it builds there's so much investment along the way there's when it when that sort of zoom in on gwen's face happened and the and there was one point where i had a jerry seinfeld moment where i thought hang a minute hang on a minute if they're going to wrap this up satisfactorily, it's going to be another 40 minutes of film. And I realized that that's not going to happen. So I didn't, I didn't know it was a middle part. Like I didn't know it was there. There was, so when it, so when the to be continued came up, I legitimately went, Oh no, I want to know what happens. So, which I haven't done in a sequel for a long, long time. So um, yeah, that's exciting. I'm, I'm very excited about the Spider-Verse films, which I, you know, me and these superhero things, they're not ones that I gravitate to at my age very much anymore, but this one is uh is a legitimately excellent piece of filmmaking. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, if you're even just like a casual, I mean, like I just recommend like anyone who just likes, you know, fun action movies, if superhero things aren't necessarily your bag, I think there's still value to these Spider-Verse movies. It's certainly oh, absolutely. top tier. It surpasses anything I've really seen in a lot of these live action films. I reacted to this one in the same way that I reacted to The Incredibles, which was my sort of high watermark for everything. Um, the first Incredibles film is one of my favourite movies, and this is right up there with it. So there you go. It's out there. Uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Sony Pictures Animation in wide release. Get along and see it. I got along and saw in a dark room, The Boogeyman. When there are scary things we don't understand, our minds try to fill in the blanks. Sometimes the best thing to do is to face it. So this light 
is going to be completely solid like it is right now. And gradually, it's going to start flashing until it's totally dark. So you can see that there's nothing to be afraid of. Okay? See? That's not so scary, is it? So... <laughs> I don't know whether he cut that out, but he just did a boogeyman noise. It was very good. Um, this one stars the terrific Sophie Thatcher, and I'll come back to who Sophie Thatcher is and why she's the best reason to see this film a little bit later. Uh, she plays the older sister of a young girl who's having night terrors. She thinks there's something in the cupboard. The father, played by Chris Messina, is a little bit distracted. He's got his own issues in life. Um, and the family unit has been shattered by the death of the mother. So there's this uh, ongoing creeping sense of guilt and grief in the house as to how the mother passed away, which, of course, manifests itself as the creepy dude of the title. Um, it's all fairly bog standard PG-13 horror up to this point. Um, there is a terrific cameo at the start of the film by who's the guy from Suicide Squad? Uh, Daniel Dave Batista. Oh, no, what's his name? I've got to try and find that. Um, who sort of turns up into to the uh, apartment as a as a, a patient of the father's, and he turns into a a very um, creepy piece of work. Uh, but let's get back to Sophie Thatcher. Now, Sophie Thatcher, she was in a terrific little um, science fiction indie film a few years ago called Prospect with Pedro Pascal. Um, fantastic film. See it on one of the streamers if you can. Um, and, of course, she's doing the rounds in Yellow Jackets at the moment. As the older sister who uh, sort of tries to help everybody understand that there is something real and nasty creeping around the house, uh, she centres this film and is really the only reason to see it because in every other regard it's a fairly sort of been there, done that before PG-13 monster movie. Um, it's a shame that this is coming on the heels of something like Barbarian, which has a similar sort of look and feel to it, but, but which was uh, infinitely more clever in its storytelling and in its visuals. Um, this is a real surprise because it's directed by a guy called Rob Savage who's done a couple of really effective sort of found footage type of movies in the past. He did the, the Netflix film Host and he did Dashcam. And they were two really energised, really sort of exciting um, uses of the found footage format or the single camera format. And um, in, in doing a more traditional horror film, he really stumbles with this one. So it's okay. If, you've, if you are a 13-year-old girl and you've never seen a horror film before, then this might be the coolest thing at your next slumber party. But it'll be... Um, It'll be on the streamers before you know it, and there's a fairly limp sort of Stephen King adaptation. It's called The Boogeyman. It's in a wide release. Okay, Simon, uh, you know, I'm not even sure faint phrase is probably the phrase to use there. <laughs> you know, I gave it a three on my Letterboxd account. Go and check me out on Letterboxd. I do some interesting things there. Um, yeah, I gave it three. I'd probably sort of knock half a star off that at this stage. It's a, It's a very sort of tepid kind of movie it, it reminded me of those stephen king adaptations remember or maybe you don't remember because you're very young the they sort of had that big wave of stephen king films with carrie and then the shining and then like they all and then there was those great stephen king films and then there were sort of the late 80s and the 90s when stephen king became a bit like mcdonald's they just sort of churned them out and they had all the same elements and well i mean that's my stephen like, king this feels very much my Stephen yeah, King is the Eternal and Burn like TV miniseries that they were doing. So, The Stand <laughs> begat The Langoliers, which begat that thing with Jimmy Smith. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, that was that's pretty that's low ebb Stephen King. And this is certainly in that class. Yeah. That's sad. I mean, they recently did the Stan TV series and I kinda think the original one was still probably better. Not that, that was really particularly yeah, great either. Yeah. <laughs> uh Simon, I'm gonna throw we up to now. Look, I'm going to very quickly talk about Deadlock, which is a new Aussie crime drama comedy that's currently streaming on Prime Video. Trent's dead. Very sorry, Gavin. I love that cunt like a brother. He was your brother. We've recruited an interstate detective to lead the case. Yes. Sir. Eddie Redcliffe is my name. The first 24 hours of an investigation are crucial. He was discovered 27 hours ago, ma'am. Ah, right. Hey, you fucked that up already, haven't you? So Deadlock is the new TV series by uh, Kate McLennan and Kate McCartney. These are the two women known as the Kates. Uh, we saw them hosting ABC comedy series like The Catering Show, and then there was that other one, which was a morning TV program that's supposed to air before sunrise, it was stupid, didn't care for it. But anyway, we have them here as the, um, you know, the writers, creators of Deadlock, which is set in Tasmania. It's about a uh, cop. Uh, she <clears throat> isn't supposed to be investigating this sort of murder. Uh, it's not really sort of within her remit. And there's certainly some tension with her partner when she tells her that uh, she's, you know, leading this murder investigation. Uh, being a fairly small community uh, in this town called Deadlock, uh, the fact that this body sort of washed up on the shore, which is a very naked man, which is very prominently displayed in our opening sequence. Oh, um, here we go. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so that catches the town's attention, and when people realise who it is, which is this guy that is supposedly beloved in town, but he's also got some fairly shady connections as well, it, it starts to generate a fair bit of interest. But it's really about this uh, woman who's been tasked with investigating the murder of this guy, but then also her co-workers who are all sort of wacky, zany cops. And here's the thing, Simon. I would yeah. be very much down for an Australian cop drama which has some comedic elements to it, kind of as they establish in the opening sequence here. The main character, she's really grounded, like there's a nice relationship that gets formed with like her partner, and so she's a believable character, like you're really sort of uh, connected to what she's offering. But then, in the margins of the show, you've just got all these characters that are being sort of a bit wacky and zany for wacky and zaniness' sake, and it just sinks the entire enterprise for me. So... I struggled through the first episode. I got about halfway through the first episode and I could see the lack of interest from my wife who picked up her phone about five minutes prior. And I'm just like, I'm going to watch the rest of this later because, you know, so I watched it for, you know, reviewing integrity. But by and large, the problem with this program is the same thing that I tend to find as a problem with a lot of the Kate's work generally, which is that they lean into the zaniness too much and don't really think through the actual ramifications of what they're establishing. So I mentioned there was that TV show they'd done, which was supposed to be like an early morning version of like a sunrise program. And just yeah. from like an entire sort of conceptual idea, we don't have those sorts of TV shows in Australia, which take place before sunrise or before the Today Show or anything like that. So what exactly are they satirizing? Are they satirizing morning TV shows? If not, why is it not a morning TV show? Because there was all these jokes about how up early they were and stuff, and it never just didn't really work because it hadn't really been thought through for the integrity of what the story was and that same thing's just on display here 
by really amping up just the silliness of all these characters, it just completely betrays the central character and the world of the show. I've watched on Amazon Prime Video, uh, was it about two months ago now? There was that show Three Pines, which was the Canadian series starring um, that gentleman who's in Boogie Nights. Alfred and Molina. Alfred yeah. Molina. Yeah. It's got Alfred Molina. And that was really interesting in that it was exploring small town communities and particularly talking to like the indigenous communities around in those populations. And it was a really unique way of telling a story. I thought Deadlock was going to be a really great opportunity to do something similar in Australia. Maybe not necessarily going down that indigenous route, okay, but playing around with the idea of small town Tasmania, that isolation. And if we think about uh, the TV show, uh, what was the comedy, Roy's Haven? where it was very much about a Tasmanian community and the isolation they feel from the mainland and how when you've got a community that's just kind of so isolated away from the world, what does that do to that community and the insularness of that community and the way they always like relate to each other? And that was taken to great comedic effect in Roosehaven. I thought it was a great opportunity to do a bit of a light touch version and a drama through Deadlock. And the show sets it up that way nicely, but within a few minutes, it just spirals out of control and that's just where I lost my interest entirely. All right. Okay. So deadlock. I like the case stuff. I quite like that. The the bits that I saw of that early morning show. I only watched a couple of the episodes, bits. but I, I thought they had some funny moments. So um, no, that's a shame because I was looking forward to this. I'm off to Tasmania in a few weeks' time for a a week's R and R on the west coast. So I'll be living that Tasmanian isolation, um, setting up tents on the west coast and eating wallabies like they did in LA in the last couple of weeks. But um. Sorry, wait a sec. What are you re- what are you resting and relaxing from, Simon? You're like Kramer. Your entire life's a rest and relaxation. What do you need a break from getting up at eleven? <laughs> <laughs> getting up at the crack of noon? Um, yes, you're absolutely right. I do lead a good life. Uh, so we'll be up there. I'm um, look okay. Well, I'll check out the first couple of episodes of Deadlock. But yeah, you've you've um, tempered my enthusiasm. Let's say that. Okay, uh, we have now the last review, which will lead into our intermission section. Uh, this one's called The Year I Started Masturbating. Okay, then uh, here you go. Yes, you got me. Yo, you had the. The new Netflix movie, The Year I Started Masturbating, is a female empowerment story which uh, doesn't really get around to exploiting its very um, SEO-worthy title uh, until later in the film. Um, It's the story of a young woman called Hannah, played by the very engaging Katia Winter. Uh, I hadn't seen her anything before, but she's very good in this. Um, she, in the space of one day, has a bit of a John Ringer moment from, remember at the beginning of Stripes when he loses his car and his girlfriend and his house all in one go? This happens to Hannah. Um, she's trying to get pregnant with her douchebag husband or douchebag partner, um, but he's just so creepy and such a toxic male influence that uh, when it all finally crumbles down, She's glad to be rid of him, but also not quite sure where her life's going to take her. Uh, She becomes friends with a very sort of modern young woman called Eva, played by, and I do want to get this right because she's a terrific young actress, played by Sue Erickson. Um, And she starts to discover that focusing on 
how can we put this delicately? Her regime um, and all the pleasure that it can create uh, gives her, I saw the face you made, gives her uh, a new direction in life, gives her new strength and new values. So when with about half an hour to go in this movie, she does start embracing the, um, the recuperative powers of self-love, let's put it that way, um, it does make for a, a thoroughly engaging and very sort of sweet bit of storytelling about finding one's own purpose in life. It, it's not unlike the film that I loved from a couple of years ago, Worst Person in the World with Renato Enzve. This is, uh, that was a, a Norwegian film. This is a Swedish film. A lot of very beautiful Swedish people in this movie. Um, a lot of men who are complete assholes, and let's put it frankly, their, their characters are kind of one-dimensional in that regard and kind of there for the, the gag or the... Um, you know, plot development, but that's not a problem. That's how women have had to watch movies about men for all these years. So it's not a bad thing to have some men play those roles in, in, in this film. And the depiction of the self-love is uh, done in a way that's quite funny and, and sort of gets across the sense of empowerment that she feels. So it's a, it's a terrific little film. I really enjoyed it. Very sweet film. She's very likable in the lead. Um, and I can see why it's finding an audience on the on the Netflix channel. It's, it, it came up as being in their top ten films at the moment. So that's a that's a good thing. Directed by Erica Wasserman, a, a woman director who has a really sort of gentle touch with these characters and really understands what they're going through. So it's called The Year I Started Masturbating, and uh, on Netflix as we speak. No, okay. So Simon, I think it's probably important to realise that the reason why people aren't what what sorry, starting this again. Simon, I think it's really important to realise the reason people are watching this isn't because it's a sweet comedy. It's because the movie's called The Year I Started Masturbating. This is why it's in the top 10, Simon. It's got nothing to do with the actual content of the movie. Now, oh, I fully Simon's, understand that, yes. Yeah. Simon's review of it, I think, is incredibly generous. I think this is a deeply unfunny, just fairly <gasps> terrible... It's This movie is just as mediocre as the men that are surrounding Hannah and her life. Like I it think is, you're wrong. I think it this is told a very... so thoroughly mediocre. The movie starts up. So this to me has a lot of the same problems that Deadlock has, which is that it just keeps on betraying its premise or betraying at least what the value of the story is right throughout it. So we're watching this story, which is supposed to be out of, about a woman who is taking too much time for herself and then isn't necessarily giving that time to her family. And so there's a bit of a breakdown of that relationship. Part of that is just because she's married to a woman's fault. It's not the woman's fault. She's a real woman. Let me finish my sentence. You're going to get emails about that. Screen Nobody's got an email. Nobody ever emails. But no, you've got this woman who is supposedly, um, you know, she's too invested at work. She ends up, uh, her relationship sort of breaks down supposedly because of that. But the movie opens with this dance sequence. Simon, the movie, don't give me that look. The movie opens with a dance sequence, which is about her just living this sort of very happy life. Like she's smiling and dancing and just having this great time. She never sends a text to her partner at all to say, oh, I'm going to be a little bit late. And You're so that's siding with the partner point. in this no, no, film? Simon, oh my God. Simon, just wait. Okay, so it's about the fact that, you know, she's like singing and dancing and like it makes for a good opening sequence. But then you've got this next scene, which is about the fact that, you know, she's worked too late and she's always working too late. And I'm thinking, well, if this is a constant source of tension in their relationship, then why hasn't she sent a text? Like, why is like this suddenly a thing? Why is she singing and dancing when she knows she's probably upsetting her partner at the other end? I'm not defending oh him because God. he's a bit of a terrible, awful, mediocre person. But 
this is the problem with a movie, which is that it just seems to go, it, it's kind of like when you're involved in one of those things where somebody says a sentence and then somebody says a sentence and by the end you've supposedly got a story, but instead it's just really disjointed. Okay, it's like motivations keep on switching throughout the movie, the spirit of intent with it. And I kind of feel as though there's a couple of versions of a script which is just being Frankenstein together. And it's being Frankenstein together because the writer thought, I've got this great title for a movie, this will definitely sell. And so they've just kind of grabbed what they could and just like shoved it together. None I of this movie makes sense. You, it is so I narratively... shake my head at you, I shake my head. I did, okay, well, I, well, I did not pick up on that at all. I think it's. I think that opening sets the team, sets the tone for what a generally well balanced and interesting and likable person she is. And when he storms out of the restaurant because she's a few minutes late, he is proven to be quite the asshole. She's the complete uh, breadwinner in the house. He's sponging off her entirely. And it's, it's um, like I say, the men in this, yes, they're one-dimensional. They're there to serve a purpose. But um, no, I think this sort of tells a, a very sort of um, compelling and sweet story and, and, and speaks in very modern terms about what, what uh, this woman and I guess many women go through in life. I think this film is all over the place. It's disjointed. None of the characters seem to really have any sort of clear through line. And at the very end, where there's an event that brings a lot of characters together, you're sat there scratching your head thinking, well, why are all these characters together? These are just people that have disappointed her through life continuously. And yet suddenly, for the purposes of the fact they have to end the movie, she's very happy to see everyone. Like it, The movie, scene by scene, just makes no sense whatsoever. And there's two moments in it which are genuinely funny ideas but the film has done such a shit job of rendering the world and reality and comedic spirit of this movie that by the time that they actually get to those two scenes it hasn't been earned and instead they just feel really flat where they should be comedically just great high points of the movie all right so the film has driven a wedge between the two reviewers here on screen watch and check it out on netflix it's called the year i started masturbating if nothing else it did give you the idea for our intermission bit. Oh, Simon, sorry, before we move on to the intermission bit, which <laughs> okay. we'll do this in a sec, uh, I was just looking at the letterboxd. You mentioned letterboxd, so I just brought it up a second ago. Anyway, okay. I just like this quote from somebody in the comments on uh, the, the comments for The Year I Started Masturbating, which was from a guy named Carlos, who gave this movie one and a half stars and said, the worst person in the world, a worst version. And I think he's completely nailed it. Okay, well done, Carlos. You're quite the wordsmith. Well done. Now, there was a condition of on us. Uh, um, oh, sorry, Can, sorry I just found another quote. Okay, oh, even more go. succinct is a Dan uh, backing up here. his opinion with strangers on the internet. Good one, Dan. Yeah. Go on. So, no, no, it's just people amuse me at times. Uh, so that was that one by Carlos. And then the next one down was mid-stabating, to be honest. And I thought that's very funny. <laughs> that is very good. Now, part of the reason we're reviewing this film is because you're going to try and say the title of its original Swedish one, because I know how much you love your foreign language films and trying to read the title, so go for it. Well, actually, Simon, I would suggest that in the comment, uh, no, no. Like, we, we have a shared spreadsheet here, which, you know, we put notes into each other throughout the week, usually love notes and whatnot, but I said oh, that we were going to talk about this movie. Did you get yeah. yep. Originally, I was going to review it, but Simon said, no, 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 I'm very excited, I'm very passionate, I'm... Actually, I can't even use the words he was going to use as to why he wants to review this movie, but we'll put that aside. But he said, I'll let yeah. you review this only if you promise to say this title in the original language. The thing is, I didn't review the movie, Simon, so therefore Smiley it's face. actually upon, it's incumbent upon you to say the movie in its original language and not me because you're the one that reviewed it. 
Well, having traveled through Scandinavia, I don't know if I've mentioned that before. I'll give you a bit of a rundown on our Facebook page later. Um, uh, let me just blow it up so I can see it because I haven't got my glasses on. Sure it is. I mean, Attic, Simon, talk, talk, talk about... I'm in the middle of reading. I was going to say, talk about all you want on your Facebook page. You know I'm not going to say it. Yeah, no, you don't need to focus. Okay, here's the title of the film in Swedish. <laughs> So there you go to all our Swedish listeners. I know a large proportion of the Scandi region listens to the screen watching podcast. So um, my pleasure to you. My apologies for the comments of my co-host who hated your film. All right. Now it's time for the intermission. Okay, here we are at the uh, the middle section of the podcast, what we call the intermission section. This week, the segment is called Going Blind, the best and worst self-pleasuring in film and TV. Now, this is the bit you'll read on Facebook when I put it up there later. It used to be taboo. No one ever saw Humphrey Bogart go at himself. But the art of self-love has become increasingly common in film and television. Dan and Simon, both masters of their domain, look down, I mean back, at the best moments of special private time on screen. So this opens up an opportunity for us to do it in a, to do this sort of coverage of self-pleasuring in movies in a mature way. We don't have to get all snarky and dirty like we would in the schoolyard 30-odd years ago, 40-odd years ago for me. Um, But... This has become quite common in movies nowadays, and Googling it, that was an adventure. (laughs) Have you got a list of your best and worst moments of masturbation in film and television? So, If you're listening to this, mums and dads, maybe turn this radio down if you're you're up to this kind of thing. Yeah, turn the wireless down. Okay, so the whole reason this came about is only because I thought it'd be funny to write into our shared spreadsheet that I was going to review a movie called The Year I Started Masturbating. I thought that'd be hilarious. And so this has taken a bit more of a turn. So we've reached this intermission point. And the one thing I found when I thought about this is I like just conjured up like a bit of a list in my head of, you know, some of the films. And then as I started going through, like looking at a few lists online of other films and TV shows, ultimately just kind of kept on coming back to the same list that I'd come up with. Like there's obviously other instances around the place. Uh, so, for example, like I'm looking at a list at the moment which mentions a sequence in The Girlfriend Experience that mentions it in um, Dear White People. Um, there's obviously like a Big Mouth, you know, scene. There's probably about like 45 different scenes in Big Mouth that relate You're to it. You're skimming over a lot here. You're talking no, no, about Riley like, Keogh in The Girlfriend but, Experience. Okay. I mean, that's fine. But the thing is that outside myself and the five other person that saw the girlfriend experience, it's probably not really necessarily list worthy because nobody really saw that. So ultimately you kind of keep finding yourself coming back to a list of what are the mainstream, uh, broadly remembered films that um, have sequences like this. And so I look at my list and it just kind of feels like I'm thinking about the obvious things. So there's obviously the Seinfeld episode where you don't see the acts on screen, but it's certainly discussed, um, you know, Queen of the Castle, Master of My Domain. You know, there's yep. there's the Lord phraseology around it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, George ends up winning the competition, but, you know, we find out later he lied about that. Glamour? Yeah. Yeah, Glamour magazine. Okay, so there's obviously the Seinfeld thing, which comes up number one on the list. 
Okay, there's the scene in Fast Time at Ridgemont High. Like that was, you know, immediately the first thing I probably thought of when I thought about what I had to come up with on the list. Okay. So you're looking at me with, you know, you're like, what's a Fast Time at Ridgemont High? It's a very well-known movie, sir. I know what a Fast Time I know okay. what it is, yes. Well, I'm waiting to see when you get around probably yeah. the most famous yet, but let's see how we get Well, I was going to say American Pie is probably the next one that comes up on the list where the poor, beautiful true, yeah. you know, apple pie gets defiled. Uh, I'm curious to know what you think is the most famous one because I would have thought that Fast Times and Seinfeld are probably the top of the list there. Well, there's a certain movie called There's Something About Mary where uh, yeah. it becomes hair gel. So that's probably that's one that sort of got the biggest laughs and probably took it to a next level in, in terms of what was funny on screen. So, yeah, there's, there's something about Mary as a um, – and the other one that springs immediately to mind is what Timothy Chalamet does to a peach in uh, Call Me By Your Name. Um, that, was, that was a highly unpleasant scene to watch uh, for some. Hey, for some it wasn't. Um, but, yeah, there are some, some notable ones in the, world of, in the world of film and television. Um, our your friend and mine, Maggie Gyllenhaal, has made a bit of a career of it. She um, very graphically uh, does herself over in Secretary um, and then again in the TV series The Deuce. Uh, there's a couple of scenes where, where uh, she finishes off. So that's, um, that's, that's good to see. <laughs> it's important to note, I should say. Um, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge in Fleabag was, a, was another um, moment of... of television pleasuring that uh had a lot of people talking masturbating okay, so to obama i think it was referred to as that's right so look i've got a couple of ones on the list here which are uh slightly deeper dives but i think is sort of broadly known by people um so i thought maybe first sure. we'll just mention grace and frankie which has a i think for about a season or two they're launching a vibrator company so it becomes like a core you know part of that story Absolutely. and i guess maybe notable in that series because it's just geared towards older people so it sort of steps outside sure. of what we see for most of these, which is usually teenagers or 20-somethings sort of engaging. So, you know, worth a mention. Uh, Ted Lasso in its second season has a sequence where, um, oh, what's his name, Roy ends up coming home to find uh, Keely taking care of herself while watching the press conference of him announcing he was leaving football. Anyway, very funny sequence. Well, I mean, it's a feel-good show, but that's sort of taking it to another level. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. I okay. Yep, uh, so you've got that. Uh, also, the one that I think is probably most notable is the movie Pleasantville, which uh, if people remember Pleasantville, it was very yes. much about characters who, when they start discovering, like, sort of a sense of who their true self is, they start seeing colour in the world. And there's this great sequence with the Joan Allen character who's, um, you know, a fairly oh, sort sure. of buttoned-down woman who she ends up sort of finding love in her life and then ends up uh, taking care of herself scene. and then suddenly starts seeing colour, which I thought was, you know, um, notable. The one, uh, but the last a thing I thought... Beautiful film. Yeah, the last thing I thought I'd leave with was a documentary series, uh, which is a thing that HBO used to do back in the day called Real Sex, which was um, essentially a loose excuse to do some fairly uh, scandalous TV programming, but under the guise of it being sort of an important sort of documentary... Um, and pretty much every episode of that one had some sort of scene where people are in a group together with mirrors looking at what they're doing. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wow. How about that? Alana Glazer used the mirror in um, uh, Broad City as well, which was another another fun moment to watch on television. Um, There's a very funny joke we in should that. Point out that recently... what, what was that Tina Fey movie where she was with um, 
oh, what's his name? Um, Steve, uh, for the office. Um, Steve, Steve Carell. Steve Carell. Uh, the t- a date night. That's the movie. And at the very oh, yeah. end, where yep. remember there was that trend with movies that were like quasi improvised, where they'd always have like the closing credits, and you'd see some of the various sort of takes of some of the lines they're doing. There's a very funny line in that one yeah. with Tina Fey sitting in a restaurant talking about um, using a mirror. Okay, uh, I'll quickly run off a couple more that that uh, of note. Uh, just recently, we saw a very large Brendan Fraser. Um, begin his Oscar-winning performance in The Wild with a little bit of couch time. Um, Sorry, when you say very large. Yes. His his general girth. You don't get... Oh, okay. Well, anyway, I'm walking around in circles here. Um, Of course, who'll ever forget what Miggs hurled at uh, Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. We know how that ended. Um, your good friend Kevin Spacey, he had a moment in American Beauty that was uh, noted by Annette Benning. Um, and there is some, uh, of course, some moments of uh, joyful loneliness in Boogie Nights as well. And The Lighthouse. Oh, that's right. Robert Pattinson went at himself in The Lighthouse. That was an interesting film. All right. So that brings to the end of the segment, which I think went quite well, considering how it could have degenerated, but it actually wasn't too bad. Um, I don't know. At times, I thought we were only entertaining ourselves. <laughs> that was the inter- intermission. What oh, else have you been watching, Dan Barrow? Uh, look, uh, just really quickly, there's a documentary about Mary Tyler Moore called Being Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, it's pretty good. It kind of just goes through some of the, you know, expected stories. But also, I think I just kind of know her story a bit too well to get a lot of value out of it. But, um, you know, interesting, yeah, see, trailblazing woman. Yeah, I, I, I watched it and I was almost, yes, I mean, you and I know her story very well and the impact she had on generations of TV watchers from the Dick Van Dyke show through the Mary Tyler Moore show and beyond. Um, but I don't know how relevant she is nowadays, and it's really interesting to put her achievements in in perspective for a new audience um, on the binge platform and, and to see what, exactly the sort of woman she was. I th- yes, we know, and I remember like the horrible tragedy she went through with her son and the impact that the Mary Tyler Moore show had, um, but to see it from um, a fresh perspective all these years later, I thought this was a pretty terrific documentary, if a little long at just over two hours. But, yeah, it was very good. Yeah, I, I think and you know just, what else I've. No, sorry, I was going to say I think I've just read too much yeah. and seen too many things about Mary Tyler Moore in the last couple of years for it to have really sort of landed. So uh, certainly, if you're not that familiar, very much worth a look. And then the other thing I've been doing is uh, I was very late to watching Ted Lasso, so I've been watching seasons one and two sort of back to back the last couple of weeks. So um, just burning through that. So I'm halfway through season three. So everyone's talking about the finale, which is apparently hugely disappointing. I'm just looking forward to getting to that in about five episodes time. Okay. <laughs> um, what else have I been watching? Glad you ask. I decided to dedicate myself to a little corner of the TV market that we don't look at very much. We do dismiss the kind of low rent, faux reality TV show kind of thing. And on oh, sorry, Simon, was it binge this week? Sorry. I think Simon. You know yeah. why we don't really talk about this? Yeah. Because it's not interesting. Because it's shit. A lot of people are watching F-Boy Island, and I thought in a week when we're talking about wankers, we should have a look at a show called F-Boy Island. So I took one for the team on this one. I, I uh, tuned sorry. in for two Simon? episodes of Simon? F-Boy Island. Simon, you didn't take one for what? the team. You did this for yourself. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I did it a little bit. I'm a big Abby Chatfield fan. She's she's very sweet and very funny and very pretty in the as the host of this. She's kind of in on the joke, which helps a lot. Basically, you've got 12 douchebag F-boys. You've got 12 supposed nice guys. They kind of look the same, but 12 nice guys are looking for love. 12 douchebags are looking for a bit of a bonk. And you've got these three lovely women in the middle of it who have to sort of figure out who are the F-boys and who are the nice guys. Um, and then in, and then as things unfold, as they do in all these sort of island shows, um, there's humour, there's tears. Um, I just, I kept coming back to thinking I wish Abby Chatfield could get a better sort of pilot project for her talents because she, she's very likeable up front, but boy, there's some dickheads on television at the moment. And a lot of them are in this show. So F-Boy Island, you've probably already watched it um, uh, if you're into this sort of stuff. If not, nothing I say is going to convince you otherwise. Two episodes and I'm out. Don't worry. I'm only sort of doing that because I like to have a, a broad spectrum of stuff that I watch. But anyway, it's called F-Boy Island. It's on Binge. Don't you work for Binge? Uh, I do some freelance work for them. That's your point. Did you talk about F-Boy Island? Are you a company man? Well, I'm not on the podcast. I facilitate a podcast for them. Oh, I produce it. Nice. Okay. What's that podcast? Mm. What's the podcast called? Tell us. Uh, well, it's not like this. Uh, it's called Skip and Tro. It's a weekly discussion about the new TV shows that have landed on Binge that week. Nice one. Good one. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for this day in history? Uh, yeah, I think we are. Hit me. All right. June 3, 1969. An episode, an episode titled Turnaround Intruder signals the end of what fitfully successful series? I mean, here's the thing. Like, I don't know if it was that successful at the time. It's certainly successful in post-life, but this is a television program which we refer to in the modern era as Star Trek, the original series. June 5, 2018. For the first time in the pageant's history, Miss America is broadcast without what? So I'm not sure what this one's going to be. So I'm guessing it's broadcast without one of the, um, like, um, segments one of the like awards in it so like it's known for like a swimsuit like best swimsuit like i'm gonna guess maybe it's broadcast without the evening gown section no without swimsuit it was deemed to be far too sexist in a oh, one of the most okay. sex sexist pageants in history it was without the swimsuit in 2018 they finally came I, around to that you'll know this the one the swimsuits just seem like a bit too easy so i figured it might be something a bit more yeah. like an evening gown which feels a little bit more sort of decent as an idea no, they got rid of the swimsuit. Okay. June 8, 1984. Which two films are released on this day, both of which go on to be defining works of the decade? I know you put this June down 8. here and you're like, Dan's not going to get... You're like, Dan's not going to get this. This is just too arcane. But you're talking about the movie Gremlins and Ghostbusters. I knew you'd get this one. That's not a problem. And June 9, 1984. Who celebrated their 50th birthday at Disneyland? Okay, June 9, so... 1984, man. So I'm pretty certain it's going to be a Disney character and it's not Mickey Mouse because the years don't line up. So I'm going to go with the next one along being Donald Duck. Well done, my friend. You have yeah. nailed the In History segment. Four from four. Well done. I'll give you the swimsuit thing. Oh, okay, oh, no, birthdays this week. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. 
What do these birthday buddies have in common? Now, they are all linked by their association with some Hollywood great. June 5, 1971, Mark Wahlberg. June 6, 1967, Max Casella. There's a name. June 7, 1952, Liam Neeson. June 8, 1955, the great Griffin Dunn. Now, what major Hollywood name unites these four individuals? I mean, it's a weird way that you phrase major Hollywood name because it's probably not really quite that. Uh, I think you'll find that each of them have a brother that was in New Kids on the Block. <laughs> yeah, no. That's okay, not okay. No. Can I take an alternate swing here? So, uh, sure. you posted this the other day. I knew three of the four, and then I, like, I just backtracked and worked out that the fourth one was connected in the same way that I'd expected, which was... Max Casella, he was a, um, I don't know if he was a regular or he's at least definitely a recurring cast member in the TV series Vinyl on HBO, the pilot of which was directed by one Marty Scorsese. Now, I'm very close well, with Mr. Scorsese, so, you know, I'm, you you know I can call him Marty. Uh, then you've got Mark Wahlberg, who was in The Departed, which incidentally was also the movie on Framed this morning. Uh, what else have we got here? We've got Liam Neeson, who was in Gangs of New York. And then Griffin Dunn, and I haven't seen this movie, and I'm not that familiar with the works of Griffin Dunn, but he was in uh, 1985's After Hours. Started directed by uh, Martin yes. Scorsese. So all Scorsese To all of that, I say congratulations. Well done. I also would have taken the film Silence for Liam Neeson. He was in that opposite Andrew Garfield. And I'm going to say something very controversial here, but After Hours with Griffin Dunn, is my favourite Martin Scorsese film. I have seen it more than Goodfellas. I've seen it more than Taxi Driver. After Hours is my kind of film. So if you haven't seen it, do get out and check it out. Well done. That is the birthday segment. Okay. Uh, Simon, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, Folks, people, my countrymen, my countrywomen, and other identified country people, uh, thank you very much for listening to Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett or on Blue Sky at Dan Barrett or whatever the Blue Sky stuff is. Uh, start your day no, with my screen newsletter. Uh, well, nobody's really using it that much yet. Everyone's kind of just got their placeholder in place when they go wide with the with launching. Okay. It's like in beta mode. It's not really quite there yet. Uh, but you can follow oh, okay. me there. Uh, start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. Find that one at alwaysbewatching.com. It is a free newsletter that comes out each and every day of the week that has all the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And then on Fridays, I've got a subscriber-only bonus called Always Be Streaming, which recounts the big shows that launched that very week. And this week, I haven't published it yet, but it'll go out in a couple of hours' time. It's been a busy Friday and Saturday morning for me. You've done some good work this week on that newsletter. I've been reading it intently. Good job. Uh, you can see me, find me at Simon R. Foster One on the Twitter. Read my words over at screen-space.net. I do a big preview of the 10 films I really want to see at the Sydney Film Festival, which kicks off this Wednesday night with the Warwick Thornton film The New Boy with Kate Blanchett, which has had some mixed reviews. I'm keen to see what he does with this one. Um, all things screen watching, our Facebook page is at screen watching podcast. Our Twitter is at screen underscore watching the screen watching youtube channel no new interview content this week but a lot of fresh new trailers we've got barbie up there we've got the swarm which is the new um show from binge uh, and email us at screen watching podcast at gmail.com like share follow folks thank you very much for watching we'll be back next week folks we'll see you then bye bye